0: Chapter Thirty Three of Colonel Quaritch V.C. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Colonel Quaritch V.C. by H. Rider Haggard. Chapter Thirty Three: The Squire Speaks His Mind. For a minute or more, her father fidgeted about, moving his papers backward and forward, but said nothing at last he spoke you have taken a most serious and painful step ida he said of course you have a right to do as you please you are of full age and i cannot expect that you will consider me or your family in your matrimonial engagements but at the same time i think that it is my duty to point out to you what it is that you are doing you are refusing one of the finest matches in england in order to marry a broken-down middle-aged half-pay colonel a man who can hardly support you whose part in life is played or is apparently too idle to seek another here ida's eyes flashed ominously but she made no comment being apparently afraid to trust herself to speak you are doing this went on her father working himself up as he spoke in the face of my wishes and with the knowledge that your action will bring your family to say nothing of your father "'to utter an irretrievable ruin. "'Surely, father, surely,' broke in Ida, almost in a cry, "'you would not have me marry one man when I love another. "'When I made the promise, "'I had not become attached to Colonel Quaritch. "'Love, psh!' said her father. "'Don't talk to me in that sentimental and schoolgirl way. "'You are too old for it. "'I am a plain man, and I believe in family affection "'and in duty, Ida.' "'Love, as you call it, is only too often another word for self-will and selfishness and other things that we are better off without.' "'I can understand, Father,' answered Ida, struggling to keep her temper under this jobation, "'that my refusal to marry Mr. Cossey is disagreeable to you for obvious reasons, though it is not so very long ago that you detested him yourself.' But I do not see why an honest woman's affection for another man should be talked of as though there were something shameful about it. It is all very well to sneer at love. But, after all, a woman is flesh and blood. She is not chattel or a slave girl, and marriage is not like anything else. It means, as you must know, many things to a woman. There is no magic about marriage to make that which is unrighteous righteous, or that which is impure pure. There, said her father, it is no good your lecturing me on marriage, Ida. If you do not want to marry Cossey, I can't force you to. If you want to ruin me and your family and yourself, you must do so. But there is one thing, it it is over me, which I suppose will not be for much longer. My house is my own, and I will not have that Colonel of yours hanging about it, and I shall write to him to say so. You are your own mistress, and if you choose to walk over to church and marry him, you can do so. But it will be done without my consent, which, of course, however, is an unnecessary formality. Do you hear me, Ida? If you have quite done, father, she answered coldly, I should like to go before I say something which I might be sorry for. Of course you can write what you like to Colonel Quaritch, and I shall write to him too. Her father made no answer beyond sitting down at his table and grabbing viciously at a pen. So she left the room, indignant indeed, but with as heavy a heart as any woman could well carry in her breast. Dear sir, wrote the not altogether unnaturally indignant squire, I have been informed by my daughter of her entanglement with you. It is one which, for reasons that I need not enter into, is most distasteful to me, as well as, I am sorry to say, ruinous to Ida herself and to her family. Ida is of full age and must, of course, do as she pleases with herself, but I cannot consent to become a party to what I disapprove of so strongly. And this being the case, I must beg you to cease your visits to this house. I am, sir, your obedient servant, James de la Mole, Colonel Quaritch. Ida, as soon as she had sufficiently recovered herself, also wrote to the colonel. She told him the whole story, keeping nothing back, and ended her letter thus. Never, dear Harold, was a woman in a greater difficulty, and never have I more needed help and advice. You know, and have good reason to know, how hateful this marriage should be to me, loving you as I do entirely and alone, and having no higher desire than to become your wife. But of course I see the painfulness of the position. I am not so selfish as my father believes." or says that he believes i quite understand how great would be the material advantage to my father if i could bring myself to marry mr cossey you may remember that i told you once that i thought that no woman had a right to prefer her own happiness to the prosperity of her whole family but harold it is easy to speak this and very very hard to act to it what am i to do what am i to do and yet how can i in common fairness ask you to answer that question god help us both harold is there no way out of it these letters were both duly received by harold Quaritch on the following morning and threw him into a fever of anxiety and doubt he was a just and reasonable man and knowing something of human nature under the circumstances did not altogether wonder at the squire's violence and irritation the financial position of the de la molle family was little if anything short of desperate and he could easily understand how maddening it must be to a man like the squire who loved honham which had for centuries been the habitation of his race better than he loved anything on earth to suddenly realize that it must pass away from him and his for ever merely because a woman happened to prefer one man to another and that man to his view the less eligible of the two So keenly did he realize this, indeed, that he greatly doubted whether or no he was justified in continuing his advances to Ida. Finally, after much thought, he wrote to the squire as follows. I have received your letter, and also one from Ida, and I hope you will believe me when I say that I quite understand and sympathize with the motives which evidently led you to write it. I am, unfortunately, although I never regretted it till now, a poor man, whereas my rival suitor is a very rich one. I shall, of course, strictly obey your injunctions, and moreover I can assure you that, whatever my own feelings may be in the matter, I shall do nothing, either directly or indirectly, to influence Ida's ultimate decision. She must decide for herself. To Ida he wrote at length, "'Dearest Ida,' he ended, I can say nothing more. You must judge for yourself, and I shall accept your decision, loyally, whatever it may be. It is unnecessary for me now to tell you how inextricably my happiness in life is interwoven with that decision. But at the same time, I do not wish to influence it. It certainly, to my mind, does not seem right that a woman should be driven into sacrificing her whole life to secure any monetary advantage— either for herself or for others. But then the world is full of things that are not right. I can give you no advice, for I do not know what advice I ought to give. I try to put myself out of the question and to consider you and you only, but even then I feel that my judgment is not impartial. At any rate, the less we see of each other, the better at present, for I do not wish to appear to be taking any undue advantage." If we are destined to pass our lives together, this temporary estrangement will not matter, and if, on the other hand, we are doomed to a lifelong separation, the sooner we begin, the better. It is a cruel world, and sometimes, as it does now, my heart sinks within me, as, from year to year, I struggle on towards a happiness that ever vanishes when I stretch out my hand to clasp it. But if I feel thus, what must you feel? You have so much more to bear." My dearest love, what can I say to you? I can only say, with you, God help us. This letter did not tend to raise Ida's spirits. Evidently, her lover saw that there was another side to the question, the side of duty, and was too honest to hide it from her. She had said that she would have nothing to do with Edward Cossey, but she was well aware that the matter was still an open one. What should she do? What ought she to do? "'abandon her love, desecrate and defile herself, "'and save her father and her house, "'or cling to her love, and leave the rest to chance. "'It was a cruel position, "'nor did the lapse of time tend to make it less cruel. "'Her father went about the place pale and melancholy. "'All his old, jovial manner had vanished "'beneath the pressure of impending ruin. "'He treated her with studious and old-fashioned courtesy.' but she could see that he was bitterly aggrieved by her conduct, and that the anxiety of his position was telling on his health. If this was the case now, what, she wondered, would happen in the spring when proceedings were actually taken to sell the place. One bright, cold morning she was walking with her father through the fields down the footpath that led to the church, and it would have been hard to say which of them looked the paler or the more miserable of the two. On the previous day the squire had had an interview with Mr. Quest, and made as much of an appeal, ad misericordiam, to him as pride would allow, only to find the lawyer very courteous, very regretful, but as hard as adamant. Also, that very morning a letter had reached him from London, announcing that the last hope of raising money to meet the mortgages to be paid off had failed. The path ran along towards the road, past a line of oaks, Halfway down this line they came across George, who, with his marking instrument in his hand, was contemplating some of the trees which it was proposed to take down. "'What are you doing there?' said the squire in a melancholy voice. "'Marking, squire. Then you may as well save yourself the trouble, for the place will belong to somebody else before the sap is up in those oaks. "'No, squire, don't you begin to talk like that, for I don't believe it. "'That ain't a-goin to happen.' ain't a going to happen you stupid fellow ain't a going to happen answered the squire with a dreary laugh why look there he pointed to a dog cart which had drawn up on the road in such a position that they could see it without its occupants seeing them they are taking notes already george looked and so did ida mr quest was the driver of the dog cart which had pulled up in such a position as to command a view of the castle and his companion, in whom George recognized a well-known London auctioneer, who sometimes did business in those parts, was standing up, an open notebook in his hand, alternately looking at the noble towers of the gateway and jotting down memoranda. (coughs) "'Duh him! And so he be,' said George, utterly forgetting his manners." Ida looked up and saw her father's eyes, fixed upon her, with an expression that seemed to say, "'See, you willful woman, see the ruin that you have brought upon us!' Ida turned away, she could not bear it, and that very night she came to a determination which she in due course communicated to Harold, and Harold alone. That determination was to let things be for the present, upon the chance of something happening, by which the dilemma might be solved.' but if nothing happened, and indeed it did not seem probable to her that anything would happen, then she would sacrifice herself at the last moment. She believed, indeed she knew, that she could always call Edward Cossey back to her if she liked. It was a compromise, and, like all compromises, had an element of weakness, but it gave time, and time to her was like water to the dying. Sir, said George presently, it's Boisingham quarter-sessions the day after tomorrow, ain't it? Mr. De La Molle was chairman of quarter-sessions. Yes, of course it is. George thought for a minute. I'm thinking, squire, that if I aren't wanted that day, I want to go up to London about a bit of business. Go up to London, said the squire. Why, what do you want to do there? You were in London the other day. Well, squire, he answered, looking inexpressibly sly, that ain't no matter of nobody's it's a bit of private affairs oh all right said the squire his interest dying out you are always full of mysteries and he continued his walk but george shook his fist in the direction of the road down which the dog-cart had driven ah you devil he said alluding to mr quest if i don't make boisingham yes and all england too hot to hold you my name ain't george i'll give you what for my cuckoo that i will End of chapter 33